Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And uh, this week, we're going to be talking about infrastructure lock-in and whether or not to make certain decisions, how to avoid it. Dave, you kind of suggested this. Do you want to give us a little bit more context around that? And we can uh, jump in. I've had my own adventures with this lately. So. Yeah. And so when I talk about infrastructure in this particular context, I don't mean just AWS, Google Cloud Platform, DigitalOcean, Linode, or anything like that. I mean those, but then also the third-party services that you would use. Don't you wish that Rails came with a component library that would plug in the widgets, charts, graphs, and other things you need to build a solid user interface? And wouldn't it be even better if it looked great and was easy to integrate? Well, I have great news, folks. I found it. Avo provides all these things along with authentication, advanced search, menu editors, grid views, and a ton more. Plus, there's an open source version that gives a ton of stuff for free. Just go to avo.cool, that's A-V-O dot C-O-O-L, to see what they offer and give it a try. I'm so excited to have an option that works out of the box, doing more than the basic CRUD operations, and I'm thrilled that I don't have to buy an admin theme and then convert their stuff to Rails views. This is built for Rails by a Rails developer, and it's awesome. Go check it out at avo.cool. So take, for example, just, I'm trying to come up with a good example, but there's, let's say you're going to write a API, and this API is going to work with Twilio or something like that. If you are putting so much logic in your application around Twilio and sending SMS messages, then you have just vendor locked yourself into that particular client or that third party. And if anything were to ever happen to that particular third party, they go out of business, they change their API, there is some kind of DDoS going on with them, then your application in turn is going to suffer. Users are going to complain that they cannot access the resources that they are paying for and all that kind of stuff. It's a bad situation all around. But if you were to design your API to be a bit more agnostic to the vendor that you're going to be working with, for example, if instead of all throughout your application, you are making direct references or calls to the Twilio platform, instead of you were to extract all of that logic into a plain old Ruby object, and then you have one entry point that communicates with your vendor, then you're able to not only first of all, have a situation where you then contract with another vendor that is able to do the exact same functionality. You can put in a background job to first try sending out this message with Twilio. If you do not get a successful response after a few seconds or whatever, then you can fall back to this other vendor that you're going to send out your SMS message. Mm -hmm. So that way you have this kind of redundancy in place without locking yourself into a particular vendor. And if that vendor ever changes its APIs or anything like that, then you're able to go into that one file where you have all of that code set up and then make the necessary changes, update your tests, and then your application is happy again. So that's kind of what I mean around infrastructure lock-in or vendor lock-in. And I'm highly opposed to it because I've been in that situation so many times where 
something was great when it was first released, but then after a few years, it kind of lost momentum. And ultimately, that product or that feature or functionality was sunsetted. And then I was scrambling to find some kind of alternate solution. Mm -hmm. And more at the infrastructure side of things, when we're talking about the infrastructure lock-in side of things, that that's a lot more complicated because you're not just having to make some application code changes. You may have to make changes to your code, but then you're also in the situation where now you your code is hosted up at a particular vendor using one of their right. specific technologies. And you can get yourself in a situation where all of a sudden something just doesn't work. And then what do you do? Your application's down or a significant feature of your application's down and you have no alternative path because you have <clears throat> locked yourself in with that infrastructure, that vendor. Yeah, I, I just ran into this actually. So... I think we were talking about it before the show, but so I was running topendevs.com on DigitalOcean's app platform and worked fine for a while, quite a while. But, and I, I can only speculate on, you know, what may or may not have caused this because there's no visibility, right? Into what they're running, you know, it'll show you runtime logs. So I can see, you know, jobs getting processes or getting processed. I can see what's coming through on the Rails app, but the rest of the infrastructure is kind of a, a mystery almost, right? And so I set things up. I was running it, ran into an issue with fireside.fm, which is where we had been hosting the shows before. So I moved everything over to topendevs.com. I, I kind of built in the infrastructure. So now everybody's phone or whatever podcast device they're using on their podcast app is periodically pinging topendevs.com to get the RSS feed for the podcasts, right? And so I rather significantly increased the traffic right? All the show notes, everything else is over there. You know, I moved the media files over and, you know, they're, they're hosted on a different CDN, right? So that doesn't go through that platform. But when they go to download it, it hits topendevs.com first so that I can, you know, track a download and deduplicate the, the numbers and things like that, right? So I have all this stuff going on. And yeah, about a week after that, Top End Devs just quit responding on app platform. And so, you know, I go look at the runtime logs because I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe it's just, it's, it's giving a weird response and I'll, there's nothing there. I looked in Sentry for errors, nothing there. It's just not serving the Rails app. And so <laughs> I reached out to support, right? I was like, Hey guys, <laughs> I'm kind of stuck here. And they respond by the time they got back to me, it was back up. So my, their response was, well, hey, it works for me. <laughs> right. And so it, I was like, all right, well, maybe it's a fluke. Right. Because I, I had deployed a couple of times since then to see if that would fix it. And I don't know, maybe something I put into the deployment worked or who knows. So I went back to him because it went down again and it'd been down for like three hours. So I just determined not to deploy again. Right. Mm -hmm. So that it would keep exhibiting the behavior. So maybe they could figure it out. And in the meantime, started setting up a VPS, which is kind of a pain in the butt. But anyway, so I sent the same message back. And by the time they got around to the ticket again, it was back up inexplicably. So, you know, I moved it over to a VPS. I set up Capistrano because I wasn't deploying with Capistrano. It would just deploy whenever I pushed to Git. I moved a whole bunch of the information that was in environment variables out of environment variables. I'm not a huge fan of putting them into .end files, right? Because I feel like, okay, you know, yeah, come hack my machine and just pull them out, right? I can hide a lot of that in the Rails credentials file. And that's generally the way that I like to do that. So I moved all of the stuff out of environment variables and into the credentials and committed that and the whole nine yards. And so I had to do a fairly significant amount of work 
basically reeling all the environment variables back in, right? Because if I can set them in their interface, then the, I guess the attack area is attacking DigitalOcean as a service and not the server. So anyway, so all that said, yeah, I spent several hours the last two days pulling that together and then figuring out because uh, I used to just set things up, you know, and just start and stop Puma. But they they kind of push you toward doing using system D on Ubuntu these days. So I had to figure all that crap out and put it together. The good news is, though, is that, yeah, if I ever have to deploy this again, I can deploy it to any Linux machine because I know what I'm doing now. Yeah. Right. The flip side. Right. Because there's always a trade off. Right. And sometimes the trade off is pretty negligible. And it's like this is clearly a win. For me, the trade-off is is that Rails depends on some system libraries, right? It depends on like the Postgres system library, you know, your Postgres driver compiles against it, you know, stuff like that. So on App Platform, you know, it just it just rebuilds. I think it uses Docker behind the scenes, but it just rebuilds the Docker container and, you know, you get all your updates. And if I'm running it on a VPS or something like that, then I actually have to, you know, I have to periodically be on the machine and run updates, system updates. So the, the firewall, if there are any vulnerabilities in the firewall or any vulnerabilities in any of the other systems that it runs, right, that those aren't vectors for attack. I've actually had servers in the past that I just left running. And then eventually it turned out, that, yeah, somebody was on there, installed a crypto miner, locked me out of the machine. Uh, I, I mean, I guess it's a little bit embarrassing to admit, but it happened, right? Because I had just not gotten on the machine and looked at it, right? So when I needed to update that machine, I wound up having to rebuild it. So anyway, that's all to say that, yeah. I mean, the trade-off is is that I have the flexibility to go anywhere. I mean, I can pick up my infrastructure and I can take it to any vendor, run it on Linux and make it run. I have Dockerized it on my machine and that's how I run it locally. So that's the other thing is I could conceivably push it to Docker Hub and then pull it, mm-hmm. play it wherever, right? Because then all I have to do is make sure that I'm getting a an up-to-date version of my image, right, That that has all the security updates that I need to run. So so yeah. there's there's a trade-off that way too. But either way, yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about as far as like the infrastructure is that I had no control or visibility into what was going on with my stuff. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, that just came at a really bad time for DigitalOcean because I think a lot of people were looking at Heroku and just all the stuff that they've been going through the past year with their stability and uptime and they're looking for an alternative solution that is production ready. Right. That measurements are in place that will sustain an application through heavy load, through issues and everything. Right. And, and all I want to do is just push to get and have it appear. Yeah. Yeah. And the past couple of episodes I've done on Drift and Ruby have been pretty interesting around infrastructure. You know, the first episode was creating a template generator for Rails applications that has a bit different focus. So typically when we talk about the Rails templates, we're talking about adding in functionality into our application that we can then use. But this approach was adding in deployment functionality. So whenever you create a new Rails application with this template, that it's going to give you all the Docker files, the Docker Compose, the production Docker file and production ready Docker Compose files that you're able to then use and consume. And I pair that with another episode called Easy Infrastructure that sets up a Docker Swarm 
that Dr. Swarm is running traffic on it and also Portainer. And between those two episodes, you're able to create a brand new Rails application. You're then able to deploy it up to an infrastructure within two minutes. Mm, And with Portainer, you have the webhooks. So you can just make a post request to a specified webhook, and then that will auto-trigger the deployment, pulling down the latest image and deploying it. So Mm -hmm. from zero to having a fully qualified domain name that's resolvable to your application up to two minutes time. And, you know, that's what I was really trying to solve with those episodes. But it's not a production level application because you are dockerizing Redis, you are dockerizing Mm -hmm. Elasticsearch and your database and everything. That's a good production e kind of thing to do just in case if one of those containers go down, then your application goes down Mm -hmm. instead of having multiple application services running behind a load balancer or something. Right. Yeah, I kind of like the approach there. I've had a few people basically, you know, because I was tweeting about it too, you know, I had one or two people that got on and said, well, you're you're not moving off of all the cloud services, are you? Because they're, you know, (laughs) there are advantages to that. And because you can get hosted options for Elasticsearch and Redis and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, right, in the cloud. And I'm still on DigitalOcean. I just moved it to a VPS, right? I just moved it off of that platform. And so my database is a DigitalOcean database instance, right? My Redis is a DigitalOcean Redis instance, right? I I don't really need or want to maintain servers for those, but, you know, I may run into the same thing. Now, hopefully those are simplified enough to where it's not an issue and it hasn't been yet, but yeah. Yeah, and I really wouldn't consider that a vendor lock-in as far as... Now you're stuck with no options. Yeah, you are locked into PostgreSQL or Redis. And I think those are acceptable terms, Mm -hmm. so to speak. But if you were using something specific, like it was a PostgreSQL compatible database server, but it added in extra functionality that that I couldn't port off of. Then you're locked into that mm-hmm. specific, you know, infrastructure and that vendor. And I would say that even if you had to get the same functionality by manually creating it or by sacrificing some performance, I would rather sacrifice that performance than being locked into the vendor. Right. Because vendor lock-in is really a problem because sometimes it's not even the application <coughs> code or the vendor itself which is causing you a particular problem. Sometimes your company may get acquired by Mm -hmm. another company and that new company already has contracts with Azure or Google Cloud Platform and you have to then transition everything. And if you are relying on something that is very vendor specific, then you're not going to be able to lift and shift as easily as if everything was a bit more agnostic. You know, if you're just using the center Postgres, center Elasticsearch, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, you guys get like a billion errors a month. Uh, what What are some of the more interesting errors that you've seen over the years? Oh, that's that's a good question. We certainly deal with a lot of errors. Um, a couple of things uh, come to mind. Um, when we very first launched and we kind of expected, you know, we'd see some people sign up and try it. We actually got one of the uh, top 10 Facebook games. Remember when they were huge? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so they, one of the top 10 Facebook games and it was 
between us one of the most buggy bits of software I've ever seen. And so it oh, managed man. to completely blow us off the internet in like our first week of launching. Um, so we, we solved That's that why I couldn't win at poker. <laughs> Those Farmville animals, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was another uh, another one always sticks in my mind because obviously we, we track JavaScript and just like with mobile era crash reporting, you know, you can't access the end user's browser console to see errors. So you really want to track that and report it. Right. And um, I remember this one customer and uh, they um, had this really fancy animation on the, on the cursor on their website. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, their JavaScript to do that, uh, they deployed a bug with it, which meant that on every single mouse move event of every <laughs> single customer they had would send a, uh, an error report to Raygun. Um, so, it, you know, working at Raygun is like dealing with a constant distributed denial of service attack and uh, doing it with style. So, so if you want to know what kinds of interesting things are going on that you're not seeing in your app, you ought to check out Raygun. Um, the, they're doing a free trial right now. You can get it at raygun.com. So, yeah, and I, I agree with you, right? I mean, there's no reason why I couldn't get a database dump, move it over to another service or stand up my own server and set up Postgres or whatever. Redis is kind of fleeting anyway because it's just hey here are all the jobs i want you to do right and then sidekick comes along and says i'm gonna do them right and so if it goes away i might miss some jobs but that's that's effectively it so yeah and yeah i've also seen some situations where you didn't lock yourself into a vendor but you've made it so difficult to switch vendors that's also kind of locking you in so there was an instance that I had to deal with where someone thought it was a brilliant idea to store important information, application data within Elasticsearch. That data was not rebuildable from mm. the RDSs or the databases right. records. So all this data was now in Elasticsearch. It was needed for the application to function properly with the data it's already accumulated. But we then had to move it from one infrastructure to another due to an acquisition. And getting that data out of Elasticsearch to then populate it into another Elasticsearch instance is a huge pain. That's not something you want to do. So same way with Redis too. Like if you were storing something important in Redis, you were probably doing something wrong. Now at any given point in time, we should be able to wipe our Elasticsearch data, re-index it, or restart the Redis services, flushing all of its data, and assuming that it was a volatile instance so you weren't persisting anything to a slow storage, and your application should still run. It might be slow while things are getting recached or re-indexed, but Mm -hmm. you should not lose functionality. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, I mean, how do you manage this? Because I'm pretty sure that like Drifting Ruby runs on AWS and, you know, you, you have to hook into some of their stuff to deploy and things like that. So how is your approach helping you avoid the vendor lock-in? So one of the things that I did early on that was a mistake was I jumped in and started using Elasticsearch. Mm-hmm. And I had no reason to use Elasticsearch except that 
it was a popular full text search engine. Right. And so one day Elasticsearch had a problem and I was unable to boot the application because Elasticsearch had crashed. And it was a managed Elasticsearch instance. It's not one that I was managing and that ended up causing a lot of problems for me. So what I did was instead of trying to fix the issue, I just removed Elasticsearch from the application and the application still running perfectly fine. So that was uh, a premature optimization that I did without having good cause. Even today, many years later, it's still running fine without Elasticsearch. So that's one thing I would avoid doing is trying to optimize for all of this growth that you think you're going to have many years later when you just aren't going to have it. So another thing is similar to that Twilio example, where if you are going to integrate with a third party service that you you create it within your application in a way where it can be lifted and shifted very easily, that you have a plain old Ruby object that you can instantiate and call out to whenever you want to communicate with this third party service. So you're kind of creating your own little API for this API, and it's going to make it so much easier and better to work with down the road, especially if you are in a situation where you have to move over to a different vendor or something like that. Right. And I guess also if you are talking about a more specific thing around vendor infrastructure lock-in with, let's say if you were starting to do some neural stuff Mm -hmm. and there is a cognitive language processing thing or whatever it is that you're going to use up in AWS, are you going to be able to, one, create a plain old Ruby object wrapper around that? And then two, is there another service out there that you're able to use as a fallback or a contingency if something doesn't work out the way you were expecting? So I'm not saying that in all of this, I'm not saying that we should avoid everything and just do everything manually or anything like that. But I think that we should just have an awareness that we are making this decision. This decision has a risk. Mm -hmm. Are we willing to accept that risk? Right. And if we're just accepting risks for no reason, then we're just introducing future problems. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I I have to admit I've been tempted by the Elasticsearch, but I don't need robust full-text search yet, so I haven't. And you're already using PostgreSQL. Yeah, I am. So use PG Search. Yeah, exactly. Well, that and that's the deal, right? Is that you know I haven't I haven't had any performance issues that push me toward Elasticsearch, where maybe you know I have a larger catalog or a, a search volume that merits it. But anyway, but it's it's definitely interesting too, right? Because you you may wind up falling into some of these traps to solve a problem you don't have. So absolutely, yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know. I guess uh, this is a problem that, that people tend to go f- fall into on in a lot of cases, right? I mean, I, I've met a bunch of people that, yeah, they use Heroku for the same reasons I was using App Platform. And then, yeah, when they have to migrate, you know, they get acquired or, you know, what have you. And they're they're pushed to a position where it's like, well, we want all of this on the same infrastructure as everything else or things like that, right? They They have to rewrite whole sections of their app to work in a different way because they're no longer going to be working within the the ecosystem that Heroku provides. And uh, anyway, it's it's just, it's interesting to see how it all goes. One thing that I am dealing with with my particular move though was that 
and and I know I can move this stuff out of there, but basically I put I just moved everything into the credentials, including the, the database string. And I have the intention mm-hmm. of actually deploying this particular app under a couple of different domains for different areas of interest that I that I run. Right. So for top end devs, you know, I'm also looking at running it for podcastplaybook.com, Right. Because I, I want to offer the same kinds of instruction podcasts, things that I'm planning on offering on top end devs to podcasters. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I've had to go in and figure out, OK, now, how do I how do I specify, you know, hey, you're using this database and you're using that database without necessarily having a different, I guess, set of credentials for each app that I'm using it for, you know, because I could have three or four, right, if I decide to set it up. But let's make pretend that I want 100 of these, right? So I'm running them for other people, things like that. And so just opening up some of those flexibility angles, you know, where before I would just, you know, I would just enter a different value as the environment variable on app platform. So moving off of it has is still not a trivial thing, even though it yeah. So something that you did mention earlier around the environment variables, the .env or Rails mm-hmm. credentials, I think you, and correct me if I'm wrong, saying that it was less secure to have a .env file than to put in the Rails credentials. And I think if we are talking about our version control, then absolutely, because the mm-hmm. Rails credentials are encrypted. However, if we're talking about its final resting place in a production environment, I would push mm-hmm. back to say that's not true. That if someone gains root access to that server, it's already game over. It doesn't yeah, matter true. how much encryption or anything you have, you're already screwed. So Yeah, my point but, is is it's not in plain text in a file on the file system. Yeah, but you know, someone can run the BinRails console. Yeah, and then, and then they can query the it. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, security is an illusion. That's true. If someone got root access. But and I have thought uh, of that. I just yeah. Yeah. The um, idea for me, it's almost like storing your password in a plain text file. Yeah, yeah, if you know Rails and you know how to open up the Rails console, then yeah, you but, know, it, it'll decrypt it for you. That it has to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but at the same time, using the infrastructure's environment keys, where you can in Heroku, you can set a environment variable and then, mm-hmm. you know, set it. That's also available plain text. That's true. You can just ask, you can ask for it out of the environment. That's true too. Yeah, you can do a printenv. And then Mm -hmm. that's going to list out all the environment variables of their values. But to your question around how to manage all these different deployments, essentially, Mm -hmm. and now you have this Rails credential file that has the values that you need. Well, I would say, number one, you do not want to start branching off your code to... Have no for each nope. uh, deployment. I've seen that done before, and it oh, is oh, you have that nightmare. sounds like a pain. Yeah, it is a nightmare. Like the folks that had to work on that app, it started out as an innocent thing. This one client who we agreed to self-host has this one request, so they branched their code and they started developing that one request. Not a big deal. Fast forward 10 years. Now they have 20 other clients and they have 20 other branches. And whenever they make one code change to their trunk or to their master branch, they're having to make sure that all of these other branches are getting that code as well without any merge conflicts. So it's a nightmare. But anyways, what I would suggest is use the Rails credentials for anything internals for your application. So anything that you're going to be connecting to Twilio or anything like that, anything that can be easily shared amongst 
all mm-hmm. of your different deployments, but then you will have right. the, the environment variables within that infrastructure that you're hosting at have these specific infrastructure level connection strings to the right. Redis, to the database, and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Right. I think the two can work together just fine if you allow them. So I think yeah, that's what my approach would be. Yeah, there's no reason why you can't do both. Yeah, the ones that I'm a little bit leery about sharing are like the stride keys and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, in that case, it's better to, well, I would say it's probably better to use the infrastructure's uh, credential manager or whatever, mm-hmm. as long as it is as simple as you put in a key, you put in its value, and when you create a instance, whether it's a, a container instance or whatever, that it is available within the environment variables. Right. As long as that's the truth or the case, then we're good. Mm-hmm. If you are having to do some other, you know, mixery to get those values. For example, AWS had their key management system five years ago where it was available to the instance, but you had to query AWS to get the keys and values. So that it kind of worked, but I had to create this whole wrapper around that to then load it into environment variables. And that wasn't fun. But I would say, you know, it's probably better, you're better off creating a infrastructure level environment variables instead of using the Rails credentials in this particular case, because then you can build one Docker image and then have that one Docker image be your your golden image that you're then triggering to deploy to your hundred different uh, right. top-end dev-esque like services and you know they're all going to work because they are all using the exact same docker image you right. can essentially reduce your troubleshooting down to are all my servers down or is just one if right. just one then i know it's something infrastructure level over there and not something with the docker container that right. uh, the, the docker base. image that yeah. we built yep makes sense Cool. Well, that's kind of the next stage of things is getting that together. But I just had to get it up and running. So I just kind of quick and dirty moved everything over to the credentials. But I am I I, I recognize that, yeah, the areas where I'm going to have to be flexible and change things are it's probably going to wind up in environment variables one way or the other. Or, you know, alternatively, you could just make this one crazy big application, a multi-tenant application. And if you want to have other people sign up and stuff, you can have uh-huh. a multi-tenant within a multi-tenant application. <laughs> Why does that sound like a giant amount of pain? Oh, I'm, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a pain, but it's basically one of those things where you would use like the Stripe Marketplace or what do they call it? The Stripe Connect that yeah. allows you to have vendors then put in their own Stripe credentials right. to get paid and stuff. Right, and then I collect a percentage off of that yeah. if I want. Yeah, basically like a Shopify or whatever. Yep. yep. Yeah, I wonder if some folks use it that way because, you know, I mean, you've got the Teachables and Kajabis and all them that do kind of basically that deal and you, mm-hmm. you, you know, you set up your domain and point it over to their infrastructure and then it gets handled the right way. But Yeah, and I mean, the nice thing about that is yeah, you're putting all your eggs in one infrastructure basket. Mm-hmm. But when you deploy, you deploy once and yeah. all of your clients get the updated code. Right. So less risk of having that one-off client's infrastructure getting borked, mm-hmm. especially if you're handing over access to that infrastructure, like if they can deploy the code themselves or whatever. But you know, yep. I think that's a different 
conversation. But yep. just something to think about. Like I actually thought about doing a a multi-tenant application like that for the screencasting mm-hmm. where I can make it a easy way for others to start doing screencasting and stuff. And, you know, I started out getting it up and running, but then I kind of lost interest in it. And I didn't see that for the time and effort and the reward that it would just be there. I think other applications like Podio or other stuff like that already have a niche in that market. And they right. seem to be doing a pretty good job at it. Yep. Interesting. Cool. Well, other aspects of this that we didn't go into, because I mean, yeah, I've, I've definitely felt this pain keenly and recently. But <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the other thing, too, is like, yeah, you know, I, I moved the, the web component off of it, but I've still got to go and move the rest of the pieces off of it. Mm-hmm. And that's been kind of a pain in the rear end. So, you know. I think the only thing I would say about this is one reason why I have so much to talk about in this particular case is because I've experienced all these things. Mm-hmm. Now I've been at the same employee. Uh, I've had the same job for over twelve years now. Right. I think it's thirteen years next week, mm-hmm. and it's been through two different employers. So right. you know, the company I worked for got acquired twice. And we've had to go through all of these transitions, infrastructure yep. changes. You know, we've made choices along the road to be locked into certain vendors and then mm-hmm. just realize that mistake. If And I'm not saying anything bad about any listener who does switch from job to job every year or every two right. years or something. But there is a certain amount of experience that you get with having to live with the mistakes that you've made. Mm -hmm. And if you switch jobs very often, for whatever reason, I mean, I'm not saying that they're invalid reasons, but if you switch jobs too often with a, in such a short amount of time, then you will not experience your mistakes and how right. they've affected your future self and development. And you are missing out on a lot of learning opportunities. Right. There. Or you can just listen to older folks and about all the mistakes that they've made <laughs> in the past. You know, that, that kind of works too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good deal. Well, let's, let's go ahead and do some picks. And then we'll wrap up. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Do you have some picks? I would say one pick is a funny thing. I went to the beach the other week with my kids and my wife, and we went to Lambert's, which is the home of the Throne Rolls, which is a mm-hmm. super awesome place. Like if you need a biscuit, 
then you just raise your hand. They'll literally throw it across the entire restaurant over to you. Oh, so wow. It's it's a lot of fun. <laughs> but Fred there, me. While, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were waiting. The wait time was like an hour, which is crazy. Uh-huh. But they had a little gift shop and they had these ladies there that were doing hair weaves. And so my daughter wanted one, but it was like $2.50 an inch. Uh-huh. So my daughter has like three feet long hair that would have been like right. super expensive so i promised her that i would figure out how to do it and so i went to walmart got some of the thread stuff and weaved her hair and it was really cool it was a lot of fun doing so i guess just you know hair weaving and just spending time with your family is you know yep. my pick. good deal i'm gonna throw out a board game pick i know i've picked this one before but we've just been playing it a bunch lately it's uh, dice forge so it's uh it's a dice board game. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. Effectively, what it is, is you have kind of three different uh, currency tokens. You got fire tokens, moon tokens, and gold. And you win by getting the most victory points. So you roll your dice every turn. So on everyone else's turn, too, you get whatever the dice show. And then on your turn, you can buy cards that give you special abilities. You can buy cards that give you special dice face, or you can just buy dice face. And then you swap the faces off your dice and then, you know, you're rolling for bigger, better stuff. And that that's effectively the game on Board Game Geek. It's a 1.97, which puts it in the realm of like a monopoly. Right. It's it's a, you know, casual gamer can pick it up. It has a ton of pieces. And so I was a little surprised that it ranked in weight as low as it did. But anyway, it I mean, that the way I described it, that's effectively the game. So it's been fun. We do have some expansions and the expansions definitely make it a little bit more involved, but it's a fun game. It's it's well worth picking up. So if you're interested in board games, go pick up Dice Forge. Another quick shout out. We're putting together Rails Remote Conf. It's going to be in August. So come check us out. Topendevs.com slash conferences. I was hoping to get a little bit more stuff done on the conferences instead of fixing infrastructure problems with the website, but... <laughs> You, know, you can't always pick your problems. So, you know, that that might come a little later than I, I wanted it to. But I'm looking forward to that. And then my last pick. So I watched Yellowstone and I think they're coming out with a, is it the fifth season? It's coming out. But I went back because I, I watched all of it and I was like, oh, I'm going to go watch 1883. And I mean, I, I listened to country music in the 90s. And, and so I was a big fan of Tim McGraw and Faith Hill in there. They're kind of the the lead folks in this show. And then Isabel May has been in one or two things that I really liked. So and she's the the oldest daughter in, in 1883. And so I, I was super excited to watch the first episode and it's really good. So I'm going to pick 1883 as well as a pick. And yeah, just go check it out. It's awesome. I've been watching it on Peacock. My wife bought a subscription to them for the Olympics, I think, and then just never turned it off. So I've been enjoying that. I don't know if you have to have a premium account or not to watch all these shows, but I've been getting my $5 a month or whatever it is out of it. So yeah, I'm going to pick those. And I think I think that's all I've got for now. I'm also going to pick real quick. There was an article that talked about how to set up Puma with System D to run with Capistrano and stuff. And I'll tell you, I spent like four hours banging my head against the wall before I finally found this one that actually gave you the the config that I used that worked. And initially it didn't work and it turned out that I had a typo in it. But they kind of warned you if you if you run into a problem, you probably have a typo in one of your paths. And yeah, that's what I had. So anyway, but that that worked out and I, I'm pretty happy with it running now. 
The yeah, other nice I, thing I... Well, what was if it? I know you were having an issue with the SysMD, I would have referenced you to uh, episode 60 that I recorded. It's a free one that I use SysMD to get Psychic up and running in the background. That's what and, I'm working on now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to have to go watch that. Because <laughs> that, yeah. that's exactly what... Because I have to move the worker over. And, you know, I've got it deploying the code up, but I want to get SystemD up. And then I can just, you know, when I deploy, just tell it, okay, now tell SystemD to roll Sidekick over. Yeah. Because the, and this is an interesting discussion too, but uh, the Capistrano Sidekick gem, it sends a SIG term to the Sidekick and then Hmm. starts it again. So if it's in the middle of a job, it could conceivably kill it in the middle of the job. And that's not what I want. System D is a little more graceful with it. And yeah. Just, it tells it, hey, finish what you're doing and then start over. And, and, and that's that's what I want, you know, run yeah. with the new code. So anyway. Cool. So yeah. So thanks for recording the video that will solve my problem for me. Hopefully. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully this helps some folks kind of get an idea of where they want to end up. I'm definitely going to be exploring more of the Docker and push to a Kubernetes type thing just because I really like that approach. But I had set up VPSs before. I needed something that would just go up right now and didn't want to have to figure out how to deploy to Kubernetes. So, yeah, I would look into Docker Swarm. And I say that because one thing I really like about it is that you can use almost the exact same Docker Compose file that you're using for development Mm -hmm. as you do for production. You would need to add a few things like the uh, traffic labels and that kind of stuff or the networks. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's really it. You Mm -hmm. don't have to learn a whole different mechanism for deploying. That makes sense. And I wouldn't need it to deploy or I wouldn't need it to stand up like a Redis server and a Postgres server like I'm doing right now in Docker Compose Mm -hmm. because I would just use the, the cloud systems that I'm using now. So, yeah, you know, I was using Kubernetes for a long time before I looked at Docker Swarm and looking at Docker Swarm now, I'm like, I can't believe I was ever using Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Like Docker Swarm, it, it's very easy to manage mm-hmm. because it really is just Docker talking to each other right. and just orchestrating the pods or the containers and where they're going. I mean, do you really need more than that in your infrastructure? Not really. So a lot yeah. less moving parts than Kubernetes. Huh. I'll have to check it out. Yep. All right. Well, it was good talking. We'll talk to you later. Until next time, folks, Max out. All right. Talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.